Friends, welcome back to today's discussion on Capitalism, Part 2 with Ishmael. You're listening to Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. I want to welcome all of you again to this uh, episode of our podcast. And last time we ended our discussion of capitalism with a description of life just before capitalism came in into the picture. We were discussing how after a steady state of pain, suffering, and poverty, for thousands and thousands of years of dry existence, something happened in the world. Men finally figure out the keys to sustainable and systematic wealth creation. In spite of the lore now being fed to impressionable youngsters about how corrupt and evil early capitalism was, the reality is that something happened in society when capitalism emerged, and much confusion was given to the early stages of capitalism as if the problems that existed at the time were part of the essence of capitalism instead of a necessary stage of an emergent system. It was simply the painful emergence of a wondrous system which, even in the midst of its real struggles, doubled the real wages of people between 1800 and 1850, and doubled it again by 1900. Since the population improved its lot, the British population quadrupled during that time, making the wage increase to be 1,600% in one century. The struggles of an emergent system, a superior emergent system, were misunderstood and especially by Karl Marx. The reality is that Marxism died intellectually long ago, but many still deny the existence of that corpse. The Marxist vision of man, history, and economics was already obsolete by the year 1867, when the first tome of Marx's Das Kapital was published. You heard me right. Marxism intellectually died between 1863 and 1870. That is when men like Stanley Yevans, Leon Walras, and Karl Menger discovered the principle of marginal utility. Marxism died intellectually, died as a serious economics, but not necessarily as a political movement we continue to see the effects of that political movement based on ser- seriously flawed economics. The engagement of Karl Marx with the capitalist idea was only with the early thinkers of free markets economics, such as David Ricardo's labor theory of value, which Marx embellished with his theory of surplus value. Later developments in economics proved men like Ricardo to be wrong, but the Marxists still adhere 
to Ricardo's labor theory of value as understood and changed by Karl Marx, as deconstructed by Marx. Hayek suggested that it is possible that Karl Marx came across the works of Menger or Jevons, and that is exactly why he was unable to respond to them and to publish volumes two and three of Das Capital, because Marx was intellectually honest. He tried to give an answer to Menger and Jevons and was not able to do so. But what is the labor theory of value? This theory of value argues that the economic value of a good or a service is determined by the total amount of socially necessary labor required to produce it. You account for the cost of materials, transportation, machinery, and the labor of the workers. The aggregate value of what it costs you to produce an item is the price of that item. But what is surplus value? Marx called surplus value the difference between the cost of production and the price of each item in the stores. The price of each unit of a product above the specific objective value of the cost of production is what he called a surplus value. This added value was also produced by the workers, but it was stolen by the owners of capital who themselves produced nothing. He saw the entire capitalist enterprise as an act of thievery. This is what Marxist ideology calls wage slavery. As all the value of a product is produced by the worker, then the worker should receive all the value that people pay for that product. As that doesn't happen, the reality is that the, the worker is being stolen of the fruit of his labor. This wage slavery notion has been virtually discarded in the field of economics, but remains a common one among progressives and socialists of many stripes. Marx reasoned that goods produced for exchange or for barter must have some objective equal value. That is why they were traded for each other. If I trade you corn for apples, there must be some kind of objective equivalence between both items for us to be able or willing to trade. That is why they were traded for each other again. If I had three pounds of flour and exchanged them for a shirt, somehow three pounds of flour equals one church in value. In a barter economy, he saw some kind of objective equivalence between the items being traded. Now, in a monetary economy, that equality is shown in the price. If three pounds of flour are equal 
in value to one shirt, both items will have the same price. There is a common something that makes both of the same value and the same price. An objective value that is stolen by the capitalist. That common something was identified by Marx as the labor of the worker. The value of a commodity is exhausted by the labor of a worker in producing it. We can see here how Marx totally ignored the value in use of an item. When you present Marx's understanding of the economy to impressionable students in high school or maybe in the first year of college, by, by week two, all of them are Marxist. All of them think that this makes so much sense. But then comes the critique. As I said, the value of a commodity is exhausted by the labor of the worker in producing it. Thus, the entirety of the profit should go to the workers, not to the owners who produce nothing. Seems to make sense. But again, as Menger, Jevons, and others later showed, Marx was totally ignoring the value in use of an item. If that were the case, as Marx believed, that labor exhausts the measurement of value of a commodity, then whatever the owner receives above the cost of production has to be stolen by the owner. Economists, however, showed that the common measure of exchange value is not labor. I'm not saying that the work of the worker is not important, but, it, but that it is not the common measure of exchange value. Value is not measured by something inherent in each commodity, but rather by the subjective evaluation of the one who uses the commodity. The common measure is the utility inherent in various items as determined by those wanting them, an abstract and subjective value. The value is not objective, but subjective. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I really want a banana, but I have many pairs of socks. I might be willing to pay more for that banana than the amount for a pair of socks, because I already have many socks. Not because there is some objective common value based on labor between a banana and a pair of socks, but because of the utility that one gives me now. Let me give you another example. Let's say that a baseball goes for $3 per, per ball. But you place the signature of Babe Ruth on that same baseball. And the price of that baseball will skyrocket, will go high. And imagine that such signature is the only one that we know about. The only one we know Babe Ruth ever plays on a baseball. The value, subjectively, will go higher. 
not because there is some objective measurement of value that we call the labor that it took in producing one baseball against the other, but because the signature of an important baseball player subjectively will make some people pay more for the same baseball. And if one day they find in an attic in Boston a box full of baseballs signed by Babe Ruth, the one baseball that I thought for a moment was the only surviving signed autographed baseball by Babe Ruth will go down because the value of the item subjectively will be going down. In other words, there is something that is not captured by the labor of the worker in the price of an item. Economists of the Austrian school went further. After I eat that banana, going back to the example of the banana, I might pay the same amount for another. But by the third banana, I'm full. So I will not spend the same amount of money or any amount of money on the same item I was willing to pay so much just a few minutes ago. I'm full, so I will not spend the same amount or any amount. In other words, my subjective valuation of the same banana after the second diminishes. The amount of labor to put that third banana in the market was the same as with the first, but its value diminishes for me. Think about what people were recently willing to pay for hand sanitizer, water, or toilet paper. Think about these things and you will see the point that was missed by Karl Marx. The subjective theory of value in marginal utility is a principle that destroys Marx's belief of what motivates economic activity in a free market. Marginal utility is saying that in economics something has utility if it satisfies the needs or desires of a consumer. As people are different, the value of an item varies from person to person. For example, if I have several new pairs of shoes, buying another pair of shoes will have less utility for me. If I am shoeless, the value of that single pair increases for me. It's rather simple, but Marx misunderstood the system, misunderstood what he was experiencing, and it wasn't only his fault. The reality is that the early economists have not yet understood these principles and saw also something objective in the making of, of commodities. This was at the height of the Industrial Revolution, The struggles of an early system were the reality is that the effort was to create fixed capital, that is, the machinery, the factories, the buildings necessary for the industrial production, and the wages of people are not going to be coming from fixed assets, from fixed uh, property, but from fluctuating capital. 
you pay from fluctuating capital, which is the capital you receive from sales. In the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, therefore, was to create the fixed capital, the fixed machinery and, and industrial uh, structures necessary for increased production. With that fixed capital in place, production will increase, consumption increases, competition for the best workers will increase, and the salaries of the workers will go up. And that, ex that is exactly what happened And that's exactly why Marx did not see what he predicted, the revolution coming. The inherent contradictions of capitalism increasing the number of workers living in lower conditions and decrease the number of the very wealthy who accumulated more and more capital at the, at the expense of the masses and therefore increasing the potential of class conflict and revolution, and that's what the Manifesto of 1848 was all about. This is about to happen. These inherent contradictions are there, and now is the time to overcome the system. That did not happen. What happened was the creation of the middle class. It's the eventual creation of a middle class because what Marx understood was incorrect. He misunderstood the system. Yes, the struggles, the early struggles of the capitalist system did not reflect the inherent contradictions of a failure of, as an economic system. No, what they were were the struggles of a great system to overcome the necessary alignments for the increase of the economic potential of the system and a better life for the greater amounts of people. Before Ishmael continues this engaging conversation, I'd like to remind listeners to send any comments, questions, or reactions about today's topic, or any topic discussed on the show, to ismael at fv institute.org. If these issues are resonating with you, and I'm sure they are, we'd love to hear your feedback. Every email will be read and responded to in upcoming episodes. If you'd like to invite Ishmael to come and lecture on one of the topics discussed in this podcast, you may email him at ismael at fvinstitute.org. Org. You can also learn more about the work of the Freedom and Virtue Institute over at the website www.fvinstitute.org. Now, back to the discussion with Ishmael. Marginal utility shows that the price of commodities is not exhausted by the work of the workers by the labor of those who work, but it's determined instead by the subjective value placed on a commodity by the one who is willing to pay for it. This was essential. And here we can see how Marx misunderstood 
capitalism. What happens in capitalism is not the exploitation of those who are the owners of everything that is produced, who should be given all their earnings out of a system that they, and only they, put in motion. That they, and only they, are the ones who create the wealth confiscated by an oppressor. Marginal utility was simple, but he missed it. And he could not argue against it. And that's why Hayek and others tell us that he did not publish volumes two and three of Das Capital. It was Hegel, after Marx was already passed, who out of his notes and his, his uh, writings, preliminary writings, put them together, made certain corrections, and published uh, volumes one, volumes two and three. Marginal utility destroyed the Marxist understanding. If my desire or need for an item, the utility to me, is higher than what it will cost me, the marginal cost, I buy the item. If not, I won't. We buy things when marginal utility equals marginal cost. If I want to buy a car, I might look at a desirable Lexus, but I want my money more or I won't buy the car because I don't have that kind of money. Maybe I buy a Kia. If you also want the Lexus and can't afford it, then you buy the Lexus. The cost of commodities fluctuates subjectively. Karl Marx failed to understand that capitalism unflaggingly aims at improvement. A mark of capitalism is the facilitation of production to allow human intelligence to be applied to the stuff of the earth, to recreate it, to create greater amounts of wealth. Its wonderful instrumentality is the profit motive, which means that my efforts will be rewarded. Profit is not confiscated property, stolen wealth from those who produce and exhaust the value of commodities. No. Marx missed the entrepreneur. He missed the person with the idea. He missed the person who takes the risk to create an enterprise. And risk all he has in the hopes that people will reward his effort with profit. Profit is the signal that he is on the right track to meet human wants and human needs. More, better, and cheaper things are produced for more and more people. And in the process, I can better my life the life of my family, and the community where I live. The entrepreneur is the one who stands and takes a look 
at the landscape of human wants and needs, and of necessity must try to find a way to improve the lives of others, even if he not necessarily cares so much for the specific lives of individuals. But to be able to get that reward for meeting human needs, he must take a look at the landscape of human wants and needs. Of course, there is sin in capitalism because human beings are sinful, not because the system doesn't work. The system is so effective in producing so much wealth that people confuse the system and its effectiveness with how individuals maluse, misuse the system because in their heart they are greedy. The problem is in the heart, not in the system itself. I made that mistake as a Marxist-Leninist, as I said last time, born into a Marxist-Leninist family. Living in the Puerto Rico of the early 1970s, I looked around and I saw nothing but poverty. Listening to the stories by my mother and my grandparents of the great need and the hunger that forced so many millions of Puerto Ricans to leave the island, I blamed America for that reality. In reality, what I was looking at was something similar to what Karl Marx missed in the mid-1800s. I looked at the landscape of Puerto Rican reality and I failed to see a society in transition from an agricultural system, a quasi-feudal system of oppression, into an industrialized capitalist system with all the struggles and the problems that such transformation will bring about, and I blame capitalism for that reality. And I was convinced that it could not be any other way because I had not been confronted with a new reality. Ideologies are like, like prisms through which we look and filter reality and we will see different things. But we need to have the humility to realize that maybe we are wrong about the nature of the system we are trying to oppose. And that's the key. What is the nature of the system itself instead of simply equating the nature of the system with the momentary economic situation? Today, I realize that capitalism, again, capitalism unfailingly aims at improvement and that the mark of capitalism is the facilitation of production that allows for human intelligence to be applied to the things of the earth to create wealth. An excess of profits over losses signals that in an economy, even if sin intervenes and some misuse the system, the masses' standard of living improves. In other systems, sin will also intervene 
as they all necessarily fail in changing human nature. Capitalism will never attempt to change human nature. In fact, it revels in the reality of man who has sinful and not sinful inclinations. It aligns with the reality of man as man exists and even with the struggles that a sinful system will bring about aims at improvement, aims at admitting human needs better than any other system created by men. Systems aiming at changing human nature of necessity are systems of control. And because they are systems of control, the standard of living for most people will suffer. The many benefit even if I don't care about them in capitalism. The socialist fails to capture this truth. As Bertrand de Juvenel tells us in his The Ethics of Redistribution, and I quote, If more goods are the goal to which society's efforts are to be addressed, why should more goods be a disreputable objective for the individual? Socialism suffers from ambiguity in its judgment of values. If the good of society lies in greater riches, why not the good of the individual? If this appetite for riches is bad in the individual, why not in society? End of quote. Socialism is not Christianity in action. Socialism is merely a system of control which demands conformity to an idea from us and the surrender of what is best for the individual and the substitution of that good for some central plan which we are told that is the best for society. The end result is less creation of wealth and greater conflict on how we are going to benefit from the diminished returns of a failing system. The rise in the standard of living under capitalism was nothing less than miraculous, a truth that even Karl Marx recognized in his manifesto. It is very interesting how Marx himself recognized that tremendous capacity for the creation of wealth in capitalism, but as I have recounted, misunderstood the nature of the process, understanding that the difference between the accumulated value of what it takes to create an item and the price of the item in the store is something that the capitalist steals from the worker. He suffused, he condensed all of the value of a commodity in the work of the worker, and he misunderstood the reality of the system, that the value is not 
collapse within the work, within the labor of the one who produces the good, but that there is a subjective valuation of the consumer for the commodities that are offered to him based on his situation at the moment and the importance of the one who takes the risk of the entrepreneur, of the importance of intelligence applied to the realities of existence as a type of labor. In the merry days of old, even the wealthiest people would envy the lifestyle of today's hoi polloi compared with the average standard of the American or Australian worker of our age, the wealthy in yonder years lived a brutish existence. We speak of the threat of consumerism because we have so much to consume. I prefer the threat of consumerism to the threat of starvation to the threat of a short life and the boredom of emptiness in the pocket. If you really want justice, allow individuals to be free in the economic realm. This is what capitalism is. If you prefer justice, allow for freedom to reign. Yes, fight for the misuse of the system but do not blame the system. Yes, try to stop the corruption inherent in any system that human beings may try to devise, but don't destroy the system that is the best we have. The Freedom and Virtue Institute stands on the idea of free markets because it's just because it's the best system to create the greater and better conditions for mankind. Thank you for listening to Freedom and Virtue, the podcast. Now, learn more about the Freedom and Virtue Institute by visiting www.fvinstitute.org. Ishmael is also the author of the book, Not Tragically Colored. You can connect with him on the Freedom and Virtue Institute Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a positive review. Thanks. Until next time, stay engaged. I was thinking this was the way to go. And you put up your puppet show. I say cheers to you.